0: What you're about to listen to may include some potty talk. Then again, it may not. I hope it does,
1: though.
0: It's Friday, October twelfth, two thousand eighteen. From Slate, it's the Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Let's talk Senate races. Woo hoo! Yesterday, I started with Beto and Cruz. Now on to a race that's actually really close: Martha McSally and Kirsten Cinema from the state of Arizona, two women running against each other, kind of rare, happening now more than ever. There are six Senate races this term between two women. Before now, there were only 16 all-time. Six is true, technically, but, you know, it includes New York, where Kirsten Gillibrand is going to beat someone named Shell Farley, or as I thought it was, Chele, C-H-E-L-E, Kiyavachi Farley, and I would say Gillibrand's going to win by 40 points at least. I could tell you more about Shell Farley, but Shell Farley doesn't even have a Wikipedia page, good job, New York State Republican Party. She has fewer than 4,000 Twitter followers. Again, bang up job, State Party. By the way, as someone who mostly votes Democrat but has voted for Republicans on the local city and state level in the past, it is a good thing. Not a bad thing for Republicans to have a state party with some semblance of functionality. Seriously, the two-party system works better for each party when there is another party. OK, New York State politics aside, let us talk Kirsten Cinema and Martha McSally. Both have run triathlons. How about that? Martha McSally That name sounds like she has solved some crimes alongside Encyclopedia Brown. Kirsten Cinema combines an edgy spelling of Kirsten with one of America's favorite forms of art. cinema. has the opportunity to be the first openly bisexual member of the Senate because she is, as CNN says, Congress's first openly bisexual woman. I get openly, but why the qualifier woman? This would imply there was an openly bisexual male member of Congress. I did some research. I found out there wasn't, but here's what I did find. That Stuart McKinney a Republican of Connecticut who died in 1987, was, according to Wikipedia, actively, though not openly, bisexual. I did not quite know what that meant. I did some research. So, Stuart McKinney died of AIDS in 1987. And that was the moment when his active, though not open, bisexuality did become open in a disturbing way. Here is a headline. Imagine this headline today. This is from 1987, the New York Times headline, Friends say McKinney had homosexual sex. Friends and political associates of Representative Stuart B. McKinney said today that the Connecticut Republican who died Thursday of an AIDS-related infection had had homosexual relationships. Now, the news value of this was clear, and it's in this graph. Today, some associates of Mr. McKinney say they feared that attributing his illness to blood transfusions—that was the explanation at the time— without saying he may also have been exposed to the AIDS virus through homosexual sex, could mislead or frighten people who have had or may be in need of transfusion. So I get all that. It was a time of uncertainty and fear. And the Times does a good job of relaying the facts and what percentage of transmissions came from what type of activity. But then they included his wife's part. This is why we say bisexual. He was still, uh, he was still married to his wife, Lucy, who was uh, very, it seemed at least in print, Um, forward-looking about this. Stewart told me he wanted his death to focus attention on the need to find a cure for AIDS, not on the causes. But the last word in this Times article, with the weird headline, was from the director of the Gay and Lesbian Task Force in Washington, Jeffrey Levy, who said, I don't think it's anyone's business whether Mr. McKinney was or was not a homosexual. There seems to be a subtle homophobia underlying all the curiosity, a suggestion he would be somehow less innocent if he got the disease because he was a homosexual rather than as a result of a transfusion. Yes, I agree with all that, except maybe the word subtle on the show today. I spiel about the very same Senate race we were talking about, Arizona, and how the sartorial history of representative cinema is being brought to bear. But first, Ike Barinholtz is an actor and comedian known for his time on Mad TV and in his big role on the Mindy Project, and now he has a movie out that he stars in, that he wrote and directed. It's all about the idea of a family Thanksgiving during a time very much like our own, and an acknowledgement of the horror that that may entail. Here's Ike Barinholtz, up next. unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way. Or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You might know my guest, Ike Barinholtz, from such projects as The Mindy. But now he is out with a new movie. And when I say out, written, directed, starring, it is called The Oath... And let's start here. Hi Ike, how are you? How are you brother? Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Let's start here. I want to paint exactly when and where it takes place. Could be somewhere in the future, could be somewhere in the present, but a kind of earth one simulation. I call it not
1: so much a dystopia as a disishtopia. A uh, disnowpia. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's it's um Basically, if you can imagine a world, an America that's politically divided, mm-hmm. uh, where they've uh, not mandated, but they've highly suggested that the, the, the uh, people sign a loyalty oath. And obviously, half the country or more than half the country says, this is ridiculous, this is fascism. And the other half of the country says, eh, it's not a big deal. I think it's like the Pledge of Allegiance. Mm-hmm. So my story is all about this American family. The week of Thanksgiving, all together in a house, all freaking out about this looming government crisis and the proverbial shit hits the family.
0: Today, the government announced something they're calling the Patriots Oath, a state-sponsored initiative to have Americans sign a loyalty
1: waiver to the president. The deadline for signing is the day after Thanksgiving. What is happening in the country? Let's try to avoid that conversation
0: for the next three days, okay? Hello.
1: Hello! Hi! If these motherfuckers bring up the oath, I'm gonna lose my mind.
0: Now, Obviously, there are so many rich veins to explore with our current moment and families and how an individual person relates to the government. But you invent this thing, this plot device yeah. of the oath. Were there iterations where you weren't sure what you were going to use as your way in to kind of talk about the moment in
1: a tangible way and give it momentum and give it a deadline and all those good things a movie depends on? I, I early on thought about the concept of loyalty um, and what it meant. You know, obviously, this movie if if we had a president hillary clinton right now this movie would not we would not be here right now that's right um it was very much inspired by the current climate and our current president and i knew that he was obsessed with loyalty and i wanted it to be something that you could make a case that it's relatively innocuous that someone could be like it's just like the pledge of allegiance it's fine it's just say it it's just words just words yeah also like i know a lot of people who have barack obama was like Today's National Loyalty Day, and I want us to all stand up and take an oath. I think a lot of people on our side of the aisle would be like, oh, great, sure,
0: great. I don't know. Some people would be saying, who kidnapped Barack Obama? Yeah, yes, yes
1: definitely <laughs> they would, but but make it innocuous enough that you can make a case for it, but also make it you know dangerous enough that people could be like, this is the beginnings of something really bad. Right. And so I really always kind of knew that loyalty was going to be kind of one of the main primary concepts of the film.
0: Right. So with those ideas, I could think of a number of genres the film could be— it It could really be kind of an end-of-the-world dystopian thing. It could be a sci-fi Twilight Zone, Monsters on – was it Mulberry Street where Mm -hmm. the enemy Mm -hmm. is us kind of thing. But it's a comedy. I have seen comedies – about dystopias like Shaun of the Dead, Idiocracy, and the, the, yeah, Idiocracy, and the the end is uh, that the, the uh,
1: this is the end. This is the yes. end. Right, amazing. Movie. So
0: usually, though, here's the thing: the stakes there are the end of the world. Yes, here the stakes are discomforting, but not the end of the world. But still, you're playing, you keep the comedy going, but also make clear what the stakes are. It seems hard. It seems hard to marry the genre. Uh, the lightheartedness of the genre with the seriousness of the moment and not lose either.
1: I think, you know, initially, I always knew from, from get-go that it was going to be a different movie. And I think if I went the pure comedy route, mm-hmm. I think people would say, well, look, you're, you're, you're setting up all these very real issues to us right now that we're dealing with and you're not giving it any gravity. And on the flip side of that, I think if I was like, it's just a very serious thriller, I think people would be like, well, now we're missing all the humanity and the heart and stuff. And I'll, I, I will say, I do think by the end of the movie, the stakes do become the end of the world. You know, Tanahisi Coates yeah, says, when further, you die, it's yeah. the end of your personal universe. And yeah. we're talking about life and death. So I wanted to kind of trick people and lure them in to be like, the stakes are just getting through Thanksgiving without fighting. And then by the end, it's like, what are you going to do to protect your family? Will you do the make the ultimate choice? So we really wanted to kind of just tease people a little bit and get them comfortable, like, oh, can you believe how much this family's fighting? And then by the end, be like, oh, my God, is he going to kill him?
0: Did you always want your uh, character—you were always going to star in it. Yes. Did you always want it to be a mixed family? Because you can't really talk about— Politically or ethnically? No, I mean ethnically. Mm -hmm. You you can't really talk about 2016 without acknowledging Uh, the role that racism plays. I,
1: I will be honest. I Initially, I've been a huge fan of Tiffany Haddish since I saw her in the movie Keanu. And when I first saw her, and then I was like, she's so good. She's so tough and real. I want her to be my wife. So, right when I started. We weren't even thinking of a movie. No, just, just in yeah. real life, I would like <laughs> yeah. to be. And I, don't get me wrong, I love my wife, but maybe we move to Utah, figure it out, mm-hmm. sister wife thing. Sure. I knew that it was going to be a husband and wife, this story. And right away, I had Tiffany's face in my head. And before I even knew I was going to get her, the character of Kai was Tiffany. And then I, it did really fit the kind of purview of the, you know, kind of idyllic progressive uh, couple in 2018. So it was really Tiffany first that o- unlocked that for me and yeah. if she had bailed, I still probably would have made it a black woman because at that point, the, the, you know, the, the the part had evolved into, you know, this, this, this kind of picture-perfect uh, progressive family. So, uh, it, but I will say it was really just me being a fan of Tiffany's that unlocked that and made that kind of part of the story.
0: And who plays your uh, kind of dickish brother who looks like he either does or wants to live on a golf course?
1: That is my real brother. No in way. Real life. That's John. Baron Holtz my brother, who's an actor, you know, for years. I've seen him do plays, and he was great, and he's on an NBC sitcom. I knew, look, there's a lot of actors I can cast, but we have so much history. And it's like, dude, there's no one you hate and love more than your sibling, right? right? So there are moments in that movie where he's, like, legit pissed at me, like, as a person for every shitty thing I've ever done to him. So to to kind of nab him and let the producers let me cast him was a real coup because it gave us just such a deeper bond. You know, the younger brother kind of, you know, looking for love, feels slighted, makes sense that he would kind of drift towards that and then this girlfriend character we had this yeah. this this kind of Tammy Laren character is the one who kind of pulls him more to the right. You know what I mean? Someone's already got their foot in the pool and then you have someone just pull them in and then they're immersed and they can't get out. So they really kind of feed off of each other.
0: It's a really good dynamic. Tell me, what archetype do you think your character is? Because I saw a lot of the classic sitcom dad, the put-upon dad, who maybe has the, uh, and I don't want to insult you, well-done sitcom, but who maybe has the heart of gold, but you know, kind of screws things up as he goes about trying to execute his life's plan. Um on the other hand, so there are elements of that. On the other hand, the thing that maybe you could argue you screwed up is like adhering to this principle of not signing the oath, which is actually a really high-minded principle.
1: It is. And I, I wanted to really uh show a conflicted character, not just for him, but also for the audience looking at him. Not gonna lie, very much based off me. <laughs> yeah. I was obsessed. And still, I'm getting a little bit better, but I was way too plugged in and way too obsessed with what was going on. Right. And that, and letting News alerts interrupt things. News alerts, and, and I'm just like completely that, yeah. consumed by it. But I, I think if um, I presented Chris, the character, as the most progressive character in the movie, who's ultimately proven right, by the way. That's the thing to remember, that his whole thing is like, they're going to come to the house one day, and then they show up, right? right? But if I presented him as being right, and he was noble, and behaved well, yeah, and was able to physically handle the guys, that would kind of come off as like porn for us. Right. And I, I think for satire, if you're not kind of shining a light on, on everything, I think you're missing some opportunities. So I wanted to kind of take, you know, what I feel about um, a lot of liberals, which is, Couldn't agree with them more on the policies. They have every right to be terrified and worried and panicked of of what's happening. Sometimes there's some bad behavior for me, like some with some of my dear friends who even weren't even like hardcore Trumpers. When we would discuss politics, I would go to ten right away, yeah, and say like really mean things, right? And, really and impugn the
0: worst motives, and um, and read into maybe an innocuous comment and an in innocuous and pulling and the fight out way. of them. Right? We yeah. do that
1: sometimes. There's a scene in the movie. My brother just gives a look to his girlfriend, right? And instead of just moving on with my life, I pin him down. What does what does that mean? What did you just say to her?
0: Right? Because the the thing is, you maybe in real life and your character is. Right Right, but it's hard to stop from being righteous. That
1: – I wish I, like, thought of that line, <laughs> but in the movie. Like, he's right, but not righteous. Yeah. And and he, he, he wants to be – you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it's just, oh, that's so perfect. But I think, it, you know, the movie, it really just kind of takes how – the current political climate combined with the way we intake all the news now, whether it's, you know, like, God bless my parents, but watching MSNBC right. all day. And I love MSNBC. Look, but nonfiction you know, like, is toxic, but also
0: the way we imbibe the nonfiction, there's a toxicity to there it.
1: There is. And, and when you take the other side of the aisle where they're – Consuming media too, but it 's all bullshit it 's like obscure conspiracy theory stuff um, that's even more dangerous, and I think the character of Abby is just like me, just far right in the other side so. yeah
0: now i'm going to ask you a couple questions, and listeners could skip this. This gets into spoiler e territory spoiler alert. i'll ask you this so major scene in the movie is when Tiffany says to you for a lot of legitimate reasons she just signed the oath she 's really worried yeah. about her daughter and I think in that moment you don't really hear her as a wife and mother. It's about your righteous stance. Yes, I was. But what I'm saying is, I have fallen into that trap. Like I have this idea. I know the idea is right. Then someone I love says something that confounds it, and it's hard to get off the idea immediately and just relate to the
1: person on an interpersonal level. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And on on, um, on big issues with some of my relatives in Ohio who are. Listen, they're Republican. <laughs> and God damn it. They're in the swing state. You I live know. In I know. I know. But the good news is my parents live in Ohio okay. and they are working with Indivisible and they are trying to get Ohio blue again. Oh my God. Yeah, absolutely. Part of that is like if my wife and I have a slight disagreement on something, we are very politically aligned. But if I'm super fired up about it and she, whether it's playing devil's advocate or just trying to get more information, I right away go to that place that you go to, where I'm like, how can you think that? How can you, like, I think I said one time, like, uh, if I was gonna say, like, the top five American villains of all time, I put Paul Ryan on there, and he said some crazy shit, and she's like, well, I don't think he's I mean, I hate him. He but... wasn't a slave. Owner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but... And I was like, no, no, you don't understand because what he's done is he's been perpetrating this fucking Horatio Alger on steroids, American fucking dream myth that's like poisoning the minds of people where they have to be so obsessed with money. And I went into this like, like, like it's all of a sudden it's like you it's take counterpoint the, uh, this serial killer. You take the exactly, and you take. A husband and wife relationship right. and all of a sudden it's just like an ugly panel on like, I don't know, fucking Bill Maher yeah. where there's like a bully yeah. and we bully a little bit. I bully a little bit and, and what happens is, is the people either they fight back or they kind of just slowly desensitize and start tuning you out and both are, both are bad. Well, it makes you draw on
0: your resources. Like these days, this period, and I'm not an inherently anxious person, but I do find that this external news that we wouldn't be debating unless maybe we were birthers or – it does call on all of our reserves. So like when you or maybe I have a fight with a loved one, uh, we, we have to you know remember first principles or remember what's important. But it just comes up so often in relation to the news in a way it never has during our lifetime. And,
1: and that is – kind of ultimately the takeaway of the movie. And this is a tough ask for some people, which is, like, my hope with this movie is people see it. And first and foremost, I want you to be entertained. I want you to laugh. I want you to be, like, scared and shit because this is such a My adrenaline was pumping during the
0: action-y sequence. It it really
1: was. And I want people to kind of, like, be excited and happy that they watch this movie. Right, okay. But the bigger message, and this is, again, a tough ask for some people, is... We have these external forces that are weighing down on us, and they're making our lives very difficult. And, and ultimately, we don't have nearly as much control over them as we'd like, right? We can vote. Everyone's got to vote. If you don't vote, you're a fucking asshole. <laughs> um, but we can donate money. We can volunteer. We can affect change on a personal level. But these things, right, w- we can't let them permanently sever our relationships with our friends and family. You want to block a fucking dick on Twitter? great. You got a coworker who's just, okay, you can tune him out a little bit. But what I know a lot of people who, when these conversations come up, what they do is they're just like, I'm just gonna, I, my uncle's a dick. I just want to talk. I'm not going to talk to him anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to talk to him anymore. And I understand that. And I'm not telling you what to do. If you have an uncle who is a, a virulent racist, okay, great. He's gone. But some of our relatives are not violent, virulent racist. They, they maybe support Donald Trump who is a racist, But instead of just cutting the cord, I encourage people have these conversations because guess what? Your aunt Janet who likes Donald Trump. And and if you just can't talk to her about politics or at all, that's one less a good opinion she's going to hear. Then she's only going to hear from Ann Coulter or Fox news or whatever the hell. So what I'm trying to get people to do is not cut those cords because we're already in a bubble forever. Right. And if we, we don't, If we untether, the bubble gets smaller and it gets thicker. And as you know from reading history, that's when the shit really gets bad. So, you know, all we can do is have our beliefs and know that we're right. Because I believe you are right. Like, I hear you. I know you are right. And and we know that they are wrong. But if you can talk to them and at least try to permeate their kind of shell that they put on, the fake news uh, shell, if you can get through that and they can see a little bit of humanity out of you of how much it hurts you, of how you as a father can say, how can you do this? How can you do this? Or my, my son's girlfriend is Latino. How can you hurt her? If they can get a little bit of that empathy out of you, they can register it in their brain and, and hopefully when they go there to the ballot box, whether it's this November or in two years, they can say, eh, no one's looking. Eh, screw them. I'm voting for Liz Warren. Ike Barinald's new
0: movie is called The Oath. He wrote it. He stars in it. He directed it. Tiffany Haddish is also in it. If that, you know, gets you going to the theater. If you like her. She's likable. Thank you, Ike. Thank you so much. And now, the spiel. The Arizona race is heating up because it's Arizona. But also because of tutus of decades past. This race pits Republican Martha McSally, who commanded an Air Force squadron in Afghanistan against Kirsten Cinema McSally has a legitimately impressive record in the military and also a record of standing up to bullies and standing for herself. She successfully sued the State Department while in the military. It was McSally v. Rumsfeld for the right to leave the Air Force Base in Saudi Arabia without wearing a burqa, or as they call it in Saudi Arabia, an abaya. She will probably be a voice in the Me Too movement, too, if elected, because she was the victim of her college track coach's sexual predation. But we know her Democratic challenger, current U.S. Representative Kirsten Cinema, will be strong on those issues. And if Arizona is worried, she is a strong supporter of the U.S. military. She has voted for every military appropriation bill she has had the chance to. But that's what she actually did in Congress, when she had a say in appropriating billions of the citizens' tax dollars. What about the things she did when she had no power or vote? The McSally campaign wants voters to know that her actual votes on the actual issues aren't really as important as what happened 15 years ago when she was in law school. While we were in harm's way in uniform, Kirsten Cinema was protesting us in a pink tutu and denigrating our service. PolitiFact rates that as mostly false. The false is that there was no evidence of any denigration. The mostly is that she really did wear the tutu. Well, I got to say this. I'm no expert in women's attire. I don't quite know where a poofy skirt attached to a bodice stops being a poofy skirt and starts being a tutu. But this is why I think mostly false is a fair assessment. The woman does seem to have worn a tutu. Seems like a big deal to the McSally campaign. So CNN pressed the Republican on the claims about the tutu. I would have asked something like, now, Colonel McSally, how is protesting against a war that went on to be extremely unpopular, by the way, and to a large extent, poorly executed, how is that ipso facto a denigration But obviously, there's a reason I'm here and CNN is there. Here's what they asked. Some women are looking at that as a bit of a cheap shot, that you put her in a tutu and you're playing on these gender issues. That is not a cheap shot at all. Huh? I am not getting the zeitgeist, am I? For the record, McSally did not take the lobbed softball. Here's what she said. That is the truth. She's in a pink
1: tutu. I'm in my uniform. You guys get to decide.
0: I didn't put her in her tutu. That is her tutu. Don't mess with my tutu. Don't mess with my tutu. No, McSally just said, well, I'm a warrior and she wasn't. CNN, and this is uh, part of the normally excellent K-File, that's the Andrew Kaczynski site, really, really pounded cinema on the exact talking points that McSally would like to see emphasized. One headline kirsten cinema 's anti war activist passed under scrutiny as she runs for senate another arizona senate kirsten cinema 's anti war group blasted u s terror depicted soldier as skeleton in two thousand and three flyers the reference to the year two thousand and three when she was protesting. but you know over two thousand young American men and women would come home from that war in body bags so was the skeleton really so scary that years later it would discredit her? Remember, before you answer, take into account the fact that she was wearing a tutu at the time. In CNN's reporting, they did dig up some interviews that Cinema did with a radio host who was a 9 11 truther. The Cinema campaign says. She didn't know that this guy was a 9-11 truther when she did his radio show years ago. And while I loathe 9-11 truthers, I do think CNN is doing a disservice to the full picture of cinema's actual views when it comes to forefronting some ancillary association with a truther. Because you have a lot of evidence of years and years of voting and being pro military how pro military well the center for security policy which is a washington lobbying group does one of these scorecards where they give every member of the senate and the house of representatives a grade and it's very hard to be centrist these days most republicans get a 100% score from the center for security policy and most democrats get a zero or a single digit score in fact if you break it down by thirds of the 535 members of the Senate and Congress. Exactly 16 were in the middle third, were literally centrists on military issues. and Kirsten Cinema was one of them. I'll go even further. There is a group called the Council for a Livable World. The Council for a Livable World promotes policies to reduce and eventually eliminate nuclear weapons and to minimize the risk of war through lobbying and helping elect and support members of Congress who share our goals. So in other words, Center for Security Policy are hawks, Council for a Livable World are doves. A high score from the Council on a Livable World means that you are anti-war. Guess what? Kirsten Cinema gets the lowest score among democrats. Now it's hard to put this in a, in an ad. I'll give you that. Vote for Kirsten Cinema because the Council for a Livable World says she is the most opposed to a livable world. Or if you want to frame it based on the mission statement, which says again, it promotes policies to reduce and eventually eliminate nuclear weapons and to minimize the risk of war. You can say vote for Kirsten Cinema. She is the Democrat least likely to minimize war. Anyway, the point is she's pretty much a hawk in her actual voting record. I can understand why CNN thinks it is newsworthy to highlight that she has this association with a truther. The equivalent would be when a Republican goes on the Alex Jones show, and yes, that deserves scrutiny. But if the Republican were a member of Congress who was Scored to be the least likely to buy into conspiracy theories, that should be reported. That should count more than the interview he did. If the council for the banning of juice boxes that make frogs gay gave that Republican their lowest score, put him on its lily pad of shame or whatever, you would think that would be important too, wouldn't you? The latest polling in Arizona diverges a bit. Uh, The most recent polls show cinema and have been showing cinema with a two- or three-point lead, but there was one that just came out yesterday that shows McSally up by six. Maybe it's part of the Me Too backlash that Republicans are touting as a real thing, but you do have to wonder if it's good or bad for McSally's chances if there is a Me Too backlash. I mean, the Kavanaugh hearings were last week. Will the anger at protesters, even if it is real, and if it did affect that poll, will that anger still be going on in three weeks when the voting comes? Or maybe we're getting this whole thing wrong. Maybe it's all going to come down to a 2-2. Only time and possibly this Zydeco hit will tell. That's it for today's show. Pierre bien and Daniel Schrader, GIST producers, ask you not to futz with their ascots. TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcast, has but one humble request, a shoe with her muumu. Steve Liktai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He asks you to tamp down the inclination to tinker with his Nehru jacket. The GIST, don't dicker with my dicky. Oomperoo deperoo peru. And thanks for listening.